Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest is currently in town performing his new piece that he's working on. I think it's very exciting to see a piece in progress as it's developing, and you could probably go every night and every performance and, and see that it's considerably different. He's done... Uh, as he himself remembers, 16 to 17 monologues, and Tuesday night a member of the audience at ACT shouted out 18, oh right, 18 monologues, including uh, Swimming to Cambodia, which was also made into a, a motion picture, which I think is available at most video rental stores, including one in Sag Harbor, where he currently lives. His production is called Morning, Noon, and Night, and he hopes that it will uh, open officially in Chicago sometime next year. It's a story of a day in the life of Spalding Gray. Please welcome him to West Coast Live. Your monologues uh, have, have sort of, a, in, a, in an arc, if you were to graph them out with degrees of neuroses in them, <laughs> there was probably a big spike a couple of years ago, and now it's sort of uh, seems to be calming. Your life seems to be centering a lot now that you have a family. Right. Uh, to see the children's madness outside of mine, they're like beautiful psychotics. <laughs> it makes me feel normal. <laughs> the children have cured me, all three of them. I have a stepdaughter, Marissa, who is 12 now, and my son, Forrest, is 6, and Theo, it will be 2, January 16th. So it's suddenly a big family at age 57. Well, it's uh, rejuvenating, I would think. Absolutely. I thought it was going to take me down. But <laughs> I have to give credit to their mother, who is 37, and that helps. I mean, she's got, she's got the energy. She's got the focus. She wants to be a mother, and she's a good one. Any, uh, any sort of hesitations about drawing your children into public view? Yeah, I had hesitations about it. And one of the things that I, I didn't do was plan to open or play this piece in Sag Harbor, Long Island, which is where we live. Because there's a sweet little theater there, and they love to have me down there, but I just thought the t children would turn into um, objects or celebrities, or even in that little town. So I'm, we're so far so good out there, although I do talk in the monologue, you may remember this section, about going to make love with Kathy, sneaking off to the writer's shed in the backyard to get away from the children. And my neighbors came to see the monologue as a work in progress in New York, and they're an older couple, and I noticed that Carlos is kind of doing a lot of gardening around the back of my writer's shed now. <laughs> He's got his ear right up to it, I swear. These are your sweet neighbors who invite you over from time to time. Yeah, and to tell me jokes. Yeah. Yeah, Carlos backs me into a corner with his latest jokes. When I, was, uh, when I was leaving theater, I heard a number of people talking. Some of them said, oh, yes, that sounds very familiar. I remember going through that. And then one, one woman of one couple turned to her husband and said, you know, he seems to have more time for, for uh, naps and sex than we did. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. I probably do. Uh, because, as I say in the monologue, the people come to the house and I open the door looking like a dressed-down Ozzie Nelson, always on the verge of going to work. And, and anyone that grew up with Ozzie and Harriet, and I started that with radio, would know that Ozzie Nelson was just always just the perfect father, perfectly dressed, always getting ready to go to work, but no one had any idea what he did for work. 
So I'm, I'm one of these people that I'm, when I'm home, I'm hanging around the house all the time, and I'm, I'm, I'm not doing anything to fix the house. I'm sitting there with my journal, or I'm reflecting, or I'm staring out the window at the cemetery, or I'm going sailing. I'm a bit of a loafer when I'm home, but then um, I take notes, and I make a monologue out of it, and hopefully I, 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 I support the family and pay the workers to fix the house. Well, that seems like a reasonable sort of symbiotic system. It is, it's become reasonable. I, if I had thought about it in the past, I would have not been able to encompass it in my imagination, but it's come to pass, it's happened. The, uh, there was, a, there was a, a moment in the, uh, in the monologue where you talk about standing outside the house and looking in the windows, and sometimes I get a sense that you think of yourself almost as a third eye, you see yourself outside yourself, that you're Spalding Gray playing a father, playing uh, a character in your own life. Right. Um, people always give that big, um, you know, supposed to be a line that's supposed to wake you up, say, life is not a rehearsal. Well, I still feel it is for the next monologue. So I have to confess, for me, life is a rehearsal. <laughs> there was that uh, John Cheever story about how he would get dressed in a suit every day, go down in his apartment building, and pretend to go to work like all the other fathers. Uh, and then he'd go down into the basement, take his clothes off the, the hanger, and sit there in his underwear and write and then at the end of the day would put his clothes back on, come back up in the elevator to pretend that he was going to work like everybody else. You're not bothered by that kind of uh, image. I love that story. I hadn't heard it before. Um, what do I do? I, I guess I pretty much keep my clothes. Where do I work? You know what I'm doing? I'm writing all the time because I'm, I'm listening and processing and then I'm grabbing pieces of, of napkin. I, I, I don't type and I just scribble a note and then I, I finally keep all the little notes in a, in, in a seventh grade uh, you know, marble notebook. So when I go back and look to see what I'm going to do about a monologue, I, it, there are entries there that are totally essential, like things that my son has said. And they're just one line. So it's not, they don't go into any great detail, but that's enough to make me recollect. So in a sense, I'm writing all the time in the sense that I'm paying attention all the time, which is also maddening because that doesn't give you a chance to really live. So what frees me up to live is once I get a monologue on the stage, then I go, oh, this doesn't have to be material anymore. I'm going to relax for a little bit. And then the monologue gets getting old, and I start looking around for the new material. You know? I would... Uh you know, almost be tempted to title this piece uh, Life and Death at age 56. Or age 50. <clears throat> and because you spend some time wandering in the neighborhood cemetery and musing on our collective fate. Yeah. I, I think it was no mistake that, that, that we bought a house right next to an old historic cemetery. I think that was one of the things unconsciously that attracted me because it's a, I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm a real fan of, of graveyard meditations. I think that the one thing that our culture is very out of touch with is uh, the inevitability of, of uh, at least the end of our egos, which I'm very attached to. I am not an anti-ego person. Um, and I think that that makes us live in a strange way. How much we can accept that or how much we're in denial with it influences the way we do our everyday activities and interact with people and the morality and the ethics. And so the cemetery suddenly becomes like a beautiful graveyard meditation for all those that, and I have a beautiful epitaph where I say Phoebe Niles, uh, you know, one of the stones in there. Behold and see as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I, as I am now, so you will be. Prepare for death and follow me. You know, this is a beautiful. And then a, another one, which I end the performance with, which I, is my all-time favorite, and that is, um, it's a fearful thing to love what death can touch. And that is the, um, the real beautiful one. There's a, uh, an element that you use, um, the, uh, the TW-800, sort of in the, in the beginning of the piece, and I didn't hear it come back much, and I wonder if that's an element that you'll weave in some more as you're working this out, drop it, add it. I mean, how's your, what's your thinking on the process of this? 
I probably not. The thing that's um, consuming my uh, consciousness now is this uh, nuclear power plant that they've they've reopened in Waterford, Connecticut. It was a very dirty plant. It was shut down for two years, and for so they were starting to go bankrupt. North Northeast Utilities, and they opened this. And I think that we we're, we're 15 miles downwind of it, and we're on Eastern Long Island, and that's not Connecticut, and there's no escape route. And Helen Caldicott, Dr. Helen Caldicott, has come to our community to organize STAR, which is a Stand Up for Truth About Radiation. And we are starting to have meetings in our home, which is a very radical thing for me. I've never been involved in a grassroots level with trying to shut down a reactor. And I think that that's really consuming my consciousness now. And the Flight 800, it's, it's gone its way. There was a, uh, so as a political activism, I mean, as a as leader, and that's a new role for you? It's totally new, and I'm, I'm very uh, shaky about it. I have my first bumper sticker on my Volvo station wagon. <laughs> Never did I think the day would come, you know, keep, keep Long Island nuclear free, but that's not Connecticut, which is a beast of a, a nuclear state. Let alone have a Volvo station wagon with bicycles on it. Right. We have four bicycles on the back, and it's an old story. And it, it's a wonderful story, and that's what's great about the monologue. And the more I play it out in New York City, the more I realize uh, there's this enormous amount of families out there in America that are connecting with this. In New York, New York is an adolescent city. If you don't have money, you can never grow up because you can't afford to have children, you know what I mean? Or you might have one, you know, and that's it. You, you have a lovely description of growing up in the city and the beauties of the city, the enchantment, really, where you and Forrest are leaving your loft and you're going off to see David Copperfield. Uh, and what you encounter on the street is a vibrancy of life and an event that you might miss in the small town. We, we, we do miss it in the small town. There's nothing going on in the streets of Sag Harbor, and I love to have the kids stimulated by the New York. And it is not that far away. By bus, it's two hours, and I get in once a week. It's just a hellish drive on the LIE and the Long Island Expressway. That's the hell realm. But the beautiful balance is this huge, enormous city, Manhattan. There's nothing like it. And then this little whaling village over here. So to be able to somehow strike a balance between them, I think, is really, really good for, for me and for the children. And yet you expected to have this life in Northern California somehow. Well, I've always been drawn to this area, and, and I'm, I'm so drawn to it. I can't, whenever I get out here, I can't make a decision where it would be we'd land. And um, I lean toward the East Bay, and Kathy is, we were just up to Tamales Bay yeah, yesterday, and she fell in love with that area. So, it, again, it's this business of, hey, if you don't have a place that you love to go to, I mean, that's the treat. Still, I would rather be here in this area of California than most anywhere else I can think of in, in the world. You're listening to this special audio highlight from West Coast Live on this podcast. For more information about the show and to sign up for our mailing list, wcl.org. As you reveal your, your life publicly, I mean, how much do you want to have your, your children sheltered from that? I mean, yeah, I'm working that out as I go. When I first did this monologue, I was very nervous of turning them into McCulkins, you know, the McCulkin family. And... and, and <laughs> and all that comes down with that. But I'm... I'm You're definitely not home alone. <laughs> yes. I'm, I, I, I'm, 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 I refer to myself as being lucky enough to maintain horizontal celebrity. I have not been kicked upstairs. We're not on the cover of Time. We're not doing a TV ongoing sitcom yet. 
you know, it hasn't been bought. So that this is this one show, and it's a certain amount of people will see it, and, and I don't think the children will be kidnapped. Will they think of themselves as so? Forrest, my six-year-old, loves me to play tapes of the performance, and now he doesn't anymore. He went through that, the part where he talks about what's beyond the stars. He would get me to play that over and over and over and laugh at that. And, and my stepdaughter, Marissa, is censoring me and telling me what I can say and not say in the monologue, so I'm a little more of a battle with her. Daddy, we're off the record here. <laughs> Are we? <laughs> Never. <laughs> the, uh, no, but, but protecting them or, or introducing them to your life, I mean, over the previous 18 monologues, there's an enormous amount of, about your own life that yeah. you revealed, uh, and at some point they'll encounter it either in books or videotapes. I like, I like uh, that, uh, I don't know, you know what, how that's going to influence them. I, I can't imagine my father being me. But I can remember when Rene Shafransky and I had this really turbulent breakup over the birth of my son Forrest, our son. She said, I can't wait till he's a teenager and he sees my other books dedicated to Rene and he comes to me to find out what happened. And I thought, my God, all these years, Renee really doesn't know me because he's going to find out what happened in the next monologue. <laughs> you know? I, I, I'm, that's what I do. You know, I'm going to tell that story next, as I did in It's a Slippery Slope. Mm -hmm. the, the, uh, it's a Slippery Slope was uh, the one involved skiing and, and, and really risk-taking for you. And, and sometimes, uh, one time you were on our show, you had just come back from Southeast Asia where you'd undergone a psychic surgical procedure to remove something, and there was a great deal of fear and anxiety. But there seemed to be... Um, no hint of any desire to go through an experience like that in the current monologue. There isn't. I've definitely um, settled down, but the skiing I still do, and I'll be leaving uh, to go up to Tahoe Monday morning to, to do. That's my private act of fear still, because I'm no longer reporting on it. But it's, it's a situation, st that's the one thing that I can do that still uh, gives me a little um, you know, f uh, fear edge. But with the children, and, and I, I, I mean, this monologue, now, I, my monologues go differently. I mean, Slippery Slope was a turbulent one. Now this is a comfortable one. If there is another one in sight, I, I would expect it might be turbulent because I would expect it to be confronting the NRC and why they're allowing that plan to be open. That's got to be uh, somewhat turbulent. That's a, uh, I have a, a writer friend in Alaska who's involved in a, in a particularly uncomfortable story in, in, in her community. And... She's kind of torn between writing about it and also participating in it. And how will her thinking about writing about it affect the way she participates in it? Yeah, that, that's an old problem. That's back to that whole thing about anthropologists observing a culture. Once a culture is observed, is it the culture? And I just have to accept it, that I, everything is a story. Once it goes back to the thing, is life is a rehearsal. So uh, Kathy said to me yesterday, she said, you can't possibly be thinking of t doing a story of the nuclear power plant while you're trying to get it shut down. I said, oh, I don't know how else to operate. <laughs> you know, it's that, that for me, the redemptive act is always the story because I know I won't be around to tell it once I die. And if there's any form of reincarnation, for me, it's retelling mm -hmm. the event. So I love to reincarnate through stories, through the recollection. So op that's always going to be operative. What wouldn't you do to protest the nuclear power plant? Would you not stand in front of a, uh, a truck, I mean, with the idea that you've got family at home? 
I wouldn't do any risk, I wouldn't get near the plant, I wouldn't even go over there, but I would um, try to, the thing that has to be done with that plant is that people have to begin to know that it's open in Eastern Long Island. There's so much denial. With the summer people that have all, even Steven Spielberg has a huge house there, but they probably has a helicopter to get out. But the point is that the, the summer people are racing out from New York City to try to relax. So the last thing they want to know about is this radioactivity that's blowing over the potato fields. Uh, if they were year, more year-round people, it would be easier because the summer people are the one with the money and the power, and those are the people who have to be educated or told or bothered. bothered. So your, your town is 2,000 people in the, in the winter. Summertime? We get out. We, <laughs> we rent the house and leave. We, we, go up, we, go to, we rent a place in Martha's Vineyard in August, and we go to a little house in Brewster, New York for July that I have. But we rent it out. It's wall-to-wall it's, it's -wall -wall people. I don't know what it swells to. Frightening in a way. What isn't? There's a moment when you imagine holding Theo against your chest, which seems not to be a frightening moment. That's the big calm of Theo. I call him my anchor to the earth, but he's, because he's still a child, and I can hold him in my arms when he's not squirming, and I say, oh my God, the, the earth is doomed to overpopulation. I understand why people keep having babies. And that's the good moment. The other times is when he's squirming, I have a paranoid fantasy and say, now I know why the American government encourages large families. Once you have one child, you don't even notice what's going on out there. That was always a theory about the... Uh That was always the theory about the Reagan administration. They wanted people to buy houses, so once they had mortgages, then they would no longer be able to free to protest. They were, they were co-opted. Yeah, not a bad theory. The, uh, and your, your wife, uh, Kathy, is, is a talent agent, and she handles all your bookings? Now she does, uh, but her partner does, because I will never work again collaboratively with a woman that I live with. I have been to two relationships where they became my directors. But Kathy has uh, enough talent that she's dealing with, enough children talent. You know, she's dealing with Ricky Jay and, and Josh Kornbluth here. And uh, so she's got a, a roster of about 15 people, and she has a partner, Mary, who does my bookings. And we try to keep it separate, but it's difficult. It's difficult. Are you startled at, uh, I, I don't know, I guess monologue, uh, monologists have been around for a while, or Will Rogers and, and so forth, but your work seems to have spawned a, a variety of other children as well. I mean, people such as Josh Kornbluth and others who, who do storytelling, have, you've kind of made an art form of this that other people are doing themselves. Yeah, I'm very, I'm happy, most of all, when they credit me and refer to me as the grandfather, although I'm not real happy with that one, but... You're just a father at this point. Yeah, exactly, it could be the grandfather. But uh, what, what's happening now more and more, and I, I didn't know this, it's happening in New York City, I knew it was happening in Los Angeles, they now have clubs where you're asked to come and do a story and not try to uh, do comedy. That you, that you bring a true story and test it out there. And uh, I, I think that that's grown out of that and the workshops that I teach at Esalen when I, when I do them at Esalen, which is in autobiographic storytelling. And I wouldn't encourage everyone to do that. I mean, why? it's a freaky thing to, 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 to have that relationship to an audience. But there are people that have a propensity for it and, and should have a place for it. That's, well, I was very lucky because I had the performing garage in, in New York where I could go in at any time and do these stories without having to depend on a, a press and opening. And the, the story is morning, noon, and night. It's currently also being still workshopped in New York at PS122. Oh, no, that's, oh, that's over? On the road. Morning, noon, and night at ACT uh, tonight at 8, tomorrow afternoon at 2. And thank you very much. We look forward to it as it evolves and, and more work from you. Spalding Gray. Thank you.
Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Happy New Year. That's our broadcast today. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.